Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Bite.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a look at the long-term effects of Hurricane Ian, not just on southwestern Florida, but on air travel and airfares with our aviation expert, Mike Boyd. Then, how green is your cruise ship? Chris Elliott, founder of Elliott Confidential, has all the numbers and the questions to ask before you ever take another cruise. And then, a fascinating look at the beach resort culture, Good, Bad, and Ugly, in a new book by Sarah Stadola. It's a great read, especially before you hit the beach. First up, an after-action report from Mike Boyd. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello, Mike. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. So let's start off with with, uh, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, announcing a proposed rule And, of course, they published a dashboard as well so consumers can follow along as to what people's rights are when when flights are either delayed or canceled. Uh, Unless I'm mistaken, Mike, they already had – airlines already had most of this stuff in place as a policy goal, but it was not required. Well, I think there's two issues here. One was the one requiring airlines to make all fees – people aware of fees up front. They were already doing that. I mean, every time I hit the before I can hit the book button, there's a list of all the excess little charges I'm being being. I, I'm aware of it. The other one earlier though, with airlines reticence to even say the word refund, the airlines brought this on themselves. That they'll say, well, you know, New York shut down by a by a snowstorm. You can rebook three days later. I don't want to rebook. Mama's a, Mama's already had a wedding. So that was one where the do the doj the, I'm sorry the dot had to jump in because. The airlines weren't being upfront. They they brought this on themselves by not saying, "Oh, since we can't get you there as we agreed, you can have a refund." They avoided saying that, and DOT had to jump in. And I think they were right doing so. 
And hopefully people realize that there was an already a DOT rule in place for years that said if the airline cancels your flight for any reason whatsoever other than weather, you were entitled to an immediate refund back to your original form of payment, even if you bought a so-called non-refundable ticket. So this goes beyond that, correct? Yeah, and, and it should. I mean, I book a seat with Airline X. Airline X says they're going to get me to New York on Thursday, the 12th of June. They come back and say, I can't get you there. Legally, I have to change the consideration, give me my money back, and don't play the game that you can rebook it sometime. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. You knew it was an airline. You knew it was weather when you went into the business. Refund my money. So that's good news. All right. Now there's that's good. It's good news. Actually, it's not good news when the DOT has to get involved. It, it does say that the airline industry fell down. The more DOT gets involved, the worse things can get. But in this case, they had to. I hear you. Now let's shift gears and talk about a sad situation. Um, you know, I was just recently, about five weeks ago, in Fort Myers, Florida, doing one of our television specials for PBS, and I have to report uh, that everything we shot, every location we were at, is either underwater or it no longer exists. Um, they they really got hit in Southwest Florida, and of course. You know, you had, you had some flooding in Orlando, you had some flooding in St. Augustine, you had some flooding in Jacksonville, but if you take a look, and, and certainly flooding in Tampa, but um, you're looking at a lot of airports that were shut down at least for a little bit. Now most of them are back up, but the fact that most of them are back up doesn't necessarily mean they're operating at 100% capacity, does it? No, the, the motel just disappeared under the sea. So therefore, you know, you're not going to have as many people going down there. Now, I maintain they'll recover on the venue basis probably in the next six weeks. But the question is, will there be people on airplanes wanting to go there? And that's a, a big issue that I think we're going to find out uh, that we have other things in place. that's going to zap a lot of places in Florida more than we thought. Yeah, I know. And you know, the thing is this, uh, <laughs> if you take a look at what high season is in Florida, it starts at about six weeks and goes through April. Um, and a lot of people book their flights way in advance. You may see a huge shift away from this. In fact, I think you're predicting it. Uh, what is that going to do for for airfares? What is that going to do for hotel rates? Assuming there are hotels that can take people, and what does it mean for the rest of the of the uh, of the country? Well, yeah, the real issue is you've got Florida in itself, and we we looked at this. You know, there are certain places in 20 and 21 where airlines basically wanted a refuge for their capacity. So they added a lot of service at Sarasota and at, and at uh, St. Petersburg and at Key West even. Okay, that was a lot of additional capacity there based upon getting people down by impulse. The East Coast of Florida got none of that. They're, they're pretty much trying with the rest of the nation down somewhat. But the real issue is I think that bubble of capacity that we saw on the West Coast is going to evaporate and it's not going to come back. Cause I hate to tell you this, we're in the middle of a recession and we have inflation, and that's going to really slow the, the regrowth of this in some way. So um, I think Florida will do okay, but it's not going to be a banner year, and I think maybe a very down year compared to last year for some of those places on the west coast of Florida. So I'm already seeing uh, some flash airfare sales from airlines like Southwest and JetBlue with fares starting as low as $29 um, just to sort of generate some, some business. But I'm assuming that the fact that Florida is going to be down means those people are going to want to go somewhere else. Where is that going to happen? Well, they won't. That's, this is another option. We have inflation stopping up a lot of discretionary dollars that would have been stopped up anyway. But right now, I think it's just accelerated the curve toward that. So, I mean, you can add a $29 fare, and that's great. Book it. But you may not have a hotel down there when you get down there. Those are the kind of things we have to look at. But overall, Traffic was going to drop because when you have 8 to 12% inflation and gas prices going up and all the rest of the stuff we hear about, uh, that weekend trip to Punta Gorda kind of gets put on the back burner. And, you know, I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Americans were traveling in the summer of 2022 almost with abandon. They were traveling at any cost. They were determined to get out there and fly, and they were not price sensitive. And sometime around three or four weeks ago, they got their credit card bills and they're sitting at home in sticker shock, and then the hurricane hits. So that may have been a catalytic moment for them and saying, you know what, maybe I won't fly for the rest of the year. I'll, I'll move things back to 2023. You agree? You know, yeah, absolutely. That's what it is. And keep in mind, leisure traffic is not the same as leisure traffic. 
there's various levels of it. There's a guy sitting in Paramus that says, hey, a weekend trip down to Fort Lauderdale would be great. You know, he, they're real, really vulnerable. But the people who would plan a trip to go to Montana this fall and kill a moose, they're still going to go. But it's a very small part of the mix if he doesn't go. Exactly. So if you're planning vacation time or even business travel right now, where do you see people going at all? No, I, I think we're going to have a major decline in anything going to Florida. I think we're going to have a major decline in um, other other places like maybe Las Vegas to some degree, uh, certainly Arizona to some degree, Southern California. But the real hit is going to be to South Florida uh, because that's the place where discretionary dollars have come in and discretionary dollars have built things up. And there's one other thing that we're not, I think, addressing, and that is the power of the U.S. dollar overseas. You're going to see fewer people coming to the United States from the United Kingdom or from Europe where the dollar is almost on a power with the pound and the euro because we're no longer that affordable. Well, not only that, but keep in mind, I mean, you take a look at Heathrow or Amsterdam, Saigon fell in a more organized manner than the daily operation at those two airports. You know, I mean, there's a limit to what you can fly into and out of out of Heathrow. Heathrow isn't even a hub anymore. It's a mess. But I think places like Dublin may see some increase. I think places like, you know, maybe even Madrid. But the main flows across to and from the U.S. and the EU, which is basically the U.K., I think it's going to be dead. My thanks to Mike. So are cruise ships nothing more than floating pollution machines? Obviously, some cruise lines do a much better job than others. And Chris Elliott, founder of Elliott Confidential, goes below the surface to help us with the right questions to ask before we take our next cruise. Chris Elliott, how are you, sir? Hello, how are you? I am just fine. Um, you know, it's it's interesting if you mention the trajectory of the cruise line industry from 219 levels through the just the mess of 2020 and 2021, the shutdown of service, the limited return of service, and now, of course, full speed ahead, um, and, and with fewer ships, by the way, but still f- full speed ahead. The the real question is, what was on the you know topic A uh, before? 2020 when it came to cruise lines well it certainly was environment you had a number of destinations around the world that were questioning uh, the cruise ships impact on their on their ports and their environment and of course you had other interests questioning just the impact alone on on environmental quality of the ships themselves and how green they were and uh, so that's the story that's coming back now Uh, it hasn't gone anywhere the question is has it gotten better so, Chris, talk to me. You know, a decade, a, a, a decade ago, you know, cruise lines were running on on, on very thick crude oil, mm-hmm. high pollutants, high smoke, high density, high carbon. Um, most of them got rid of that and got cleaner burning marine gas oil. But now, uh, and of course, we all know that right before the pandemic, just about every cruise line started with single-use plastics, getting rid of those, you know, starting with the straws at the bar and continuing on with, with bottles and everything else. But tell me what's going on now. Well, no, I mean, uh, I, you know, it's funny because I was just in Dubrovnik uh, in, in Croatia, and uh, we had a cruise ship in town, and the place was just wall-to-wall with people. So when you talk about the, uh, the impact of cruising, it's not just the environment. It's also just having these massive ships show up in a place like Dubrovnik, a tiny little walled city, and just crowding right into it. Well, you know, you, met, you're absolutely you, know right. you, you mentioned Dubrovnik. Let's let's stop on that for a second because I spent some time last year with a mayor who was very proud of the fact that he put in a cruise ship moratorium that mm-hmm. no more than, I think, one cruise ship at a time could come in because if you thought it was crowded with one, can you imagine what it was? I, I actually was there. I mean, it really was elbow to elbow, wall to wall, and that didn't even count the crazy Game of Thrones fans who were coming in from oh, all the yeah. world. Um, trying to reenact that that series, um, I would hope that that you know that moratorium would have would have helped because we've seen it happen now in places like Bermuda, where they've limited the number of cruise ships in, in any one port at any mm-hmm. one time. We've seen it now where they've moved the ships from where they used to dock in Venice to a place 
further away to try to limit the impact. But uh, you're saying that even with one cruise ship in town, it's pretty tough? It is, yeah. I mean, they are. I talked to tourism officials while I was there, and they are very proud of the fact that they have limited them, but it still is. When, when a ship is in town, you can tell. You can just tell there are lots of people there. Not as crowded as it used to be, but still, you know, you have to wonder, um, is this good for a little city like Dubrovnik? And it certainly is good for tourism. Uh, you've got all those, those souvenir shops uh, that are doing quite well, but I, really it takes away uh, something from the city. Uh, and I think that they, they, there are still people there who are having second thoughts uh, about that. Uh, the uh, the Game of Thrones uh, fans are crazy. I mean, and if you think they're bad in Dubrovnik, you should see them in Split. They're even crazier there. But anyway, but let, let me ask I digress. You no, no, let me ask you this. Because people are always saying to me, what's the best time of the year to go to St. Thomas or to St. Martin? Or what's the best time to go to Dubrovnik, as you mentioned? And I always tell them to find out what, what days in the week there will not be any mm-hmm. cruise ship in town. That's when you want to be there. I totally agree with you, yeah. Go whenever the cruise ships are not there, but also, you know, the, obviously the off season. Uh, but of course, a place like Dubrovnik has a, a very extended season that lasts until the, almost the end of October because the warm weather lasts longer. The cruise ships are still coming in. So you have to really go like in November or December to really, and then it starts getting cold and rainy. But the tourists are not, they're just aren't as many tourists there. Then. Exactly. And by the way, when I mention places like St. Thomas and St. Martin, I am not exaggerating. When I tell you that on certain days of the week, there can be four, if not five cruise ships in the harbor at the same time, it is not where you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been there as well. It's All right, so, uh, so, yeah, not a pretty sight. So other than the, the sheer numbers of people and their impact, let's talk about the ships themselves. What are they doing now yeah. to essentially clean them up? Well, um, I was actually on one of the ships that's trying to uh, clean up. Well, we, we should probably start by saying the uh, the cruise industry has a horrible reputation, as you pointed out on numerous occasions on your show. But Friends of the Earth have done, uh, you know, the, the report. They do it every year. And every cruise ship gets like a D minus, pretty much, or every cruise line. Um, now, there are some exceptions. There are some smaller cruise lines that are really trying. I was on one of them, uh, Hurtiruten, which is uh, the, the Norwegian cruise line. Right, I know. Uh, not, not NCL, <laughs> but it is a Norwegian cruise company. And, uh, and they are moving toward uh, making all of the, their entire fleet electric um, in a couple of years. And they've, done, they've gone way above and beyond just getting rid of the single-use plastics, things like that. Uh, moving to the cleaner burning fuel, uh, recycling everything. They're really trying very hard. And you can tell the moment you walk on board, you see the recycling sign and it's right there in front of you. And everywhere you go, there are reminders to you know, take care of the environment. And of course, when you're cruising up and down the Norwegian coast, which is like one of the most beautiful cruises that you can possibly take, you're constantly reminded of the fact that it's a very fragile environment and we, we really do want to take care of it. So they're just being very good stewards. Uh, of of what they have there, I think. Well, you know, what, what's interesting is that, you know, you get down to a new definition of the word zero tolerance. Because I remember, mm-hmm. I, I go back just a few years on cruise ships, I remember one night going out on deck, we were at sea, and I was wearing a white shirt. And within about five minutes, my shirt was black sp- with soot because that's when they were burning all the mm-hmm. garbage. Well, now you don't have any of that on cruise ships. They have a zero tolerance policy. On the new ships, you have uh, entire decks uh, of, of each ship devoted to nothing but waste management so that everything gets crushed on board but doesn't go over the side. Everything gets gets uh, ground but doesn't go over the side. And, and that's really progress. However, it gets down to what they're burning and it gets down to uh, what they do sometimes with their fuel oil. Yeah, absolutely. And really, the uh, I'm very excited about the uh, the new electric powered fleet they're going to battery powered fleet and uh, that that is actually something that you know if we can make that switch i think that'll be great for the environment uh certainly the recycling is, is good too but it is it's not something that can happen overnight i mean when i was talking to some of these officials they said you know this takes years and years of retrofitting our fleet 
uh, or, or buying and, you know, getting a new ship and making, uh, you know, making all of the adjustments that we need. And so really it's, it's not something where you can snap your finger and say, we want to be environmentally friendly. That said, you know, there are some cruise lines that are just paying lip service to it. And I wrote about that in my Washington Post piece, but they're just, they talk a lot, but they still, if you look at their grade, they're still getting like a C minus or a D plus, which is really a, just a terrible grade. And uh, people shouldn't be cruising on these cruise lines. Well, let's talk about, you know, cruise lines and the definition of sustainability, because in terms, it's not just the fuel, it's also their scrubbers. You have situations on cruise lines now where they've retrofitted these ships with scrubbers to take out the, or to reduce the sulfur dioxide emissions and and the particulates. Mm -hmm. That's an improvement, but that's still based on old technology, based on the engines and 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 the propulsion systems they have on those ships. But what about the ships that are coming out? You mentioned Hurtigruten, but what about you have Carnival coming out with an LNG ship, right, with liquefied natural gas? That's got to be a, an improvement. Yeah, well, it's like I said, the improvements are happening slowly. Uh, you can't just snap your fingers and have uh, all the entire fleet be sustainable. And and you hit on something really important there. You know, what's your definition of sustainability? I looked into what the standards were, like there are some certifications out there and there was not one certification. Like, you know, when you talk about hotels, there's a lead certification. Everyone knows that everyone's trying to get a lead certified hotel, but there's no real corollary for cruise ships. And so it's really, anyone can call themselves green and there's no one holding them accountable except maybe the occasional journalist. So let's go down to some of those questions that people can ask, even if they're not experts or environmentalists. What do you think, Chris? Uh, I would start with that Friends of the Earth um, report that comes out every year and see what grade the cruise line uh, that you're considering has gotten. Uh, the As far as I can tell, the major cruise line, the only one major cruise line that almost got a good grade was Disney. So that narrows it down quite a bit for you. So that would be my first thing. And I, the other thing I would say is find a travel agent who knows cruising very well and someone who maybe also has a certification in green travel or sustainable travel. There are a couple of people out there who actually have those types of uh, that type of expertise and ask them what they think. Sometimes um, you know, I talked to a couple of travel agents for the story that I did and they said, yeah, uh, you know, we, we do our homework and we do our research and we can recommend some cruise lines that are sustainable. So, you know, get an expert opinion for sure. Well, let's even define that more. Cruise lines that are more sustainable, not necessarily fully sustainable. Now, one of the cruise, cruise yeah. lines that got a very low ra- rating, a D plus, was MSC Cruises. But to their credit, I mean, they are now moving forward in, in redefining their own way of, of approaching sustainability, right? They are. They're doing a lot of talking about sustainability. And I think that's another litmus test that you can use is if a cruise line has a report that they issue every year and they're trying to do better, that's a good sign. It's not necessarily, you know, the thing that would convince me to to book that cruise because, again, that Friends of the Earth report card was not very kind to MSC, unfortunately. But, but you know, you got to give them points for trying. If they're not talking about it at all, that could be a real sign that, that you know, they're just going to go to whatever they want to while staying within the law. And, of course, as, you, as you're as you aware, maritime law lets you pretty much do whatever you want to when you're at sea. So they might be dumping and, you know, burning their trash and doing all that terrible thing, all the terrible things that destroy the environment. Although I will say, to the credit of many crew members on many cruise ships around the world that when some cruise lines tried to do it, they reported it. The crew members reported it and and they got caught. Not only that, if they're going to be dumping any kind of toxic waste or oil into the water, the U.S. Coast Guard has been doing a very good job of infrared night vision surveillance where they will... If they see an oil spill, they will then uh, launch a C-130, which will be trailing a, a sort of a waterborne drone that will scoop up the water in the, in, the, in the trail behind the ship. And then when the ship gets to port, they'll compare the water sample with what they find on the ship. And if it's a match, the ship's in trouble. Uh, they're doing that with container ships. They're doing that with cargo ships. And they're, no doing, that, and they're doing that with cruise ships. They are. And, uh, and that stopped a lot of these problems because, you know, just when you think no one is looking, guess what? They are. Wow. So I got a question for you here. Yeah. How do you tell when a cruise is green for you? I mean, you have your standards, I'm sure. What do you look for? 
Well, what I look for is, the first thing is, does the cruise line actually give passengers access to that deck that's completely dedicated to waste management? I want to see it. Mm -hmm. I don't just want to take a tour of the galley when no one's in there. I want to see the waste management deck when they're really working on crushing those cans and compacting the cardboard and and, and, and basically breaking all the glass and recompacting it. I want to make sure that the zero tolerance policy is actually in place and working. And I think the smartest thing that cruise lines can do, which by the way, hotels started doing before them. You know, you and I both remember, in fact, it's still out there, the stupid little plastic cards that hotels would put on your bed saying, help us save the environment by not washing your towel. I used to laugh because the the cards were plastic. But one day... And, I, and of course, the cynic in me was saying, yeah, right, they want to save the environment. They just want to save on money. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. One day, one of the bellmen said to me, you know what? Let me get permission. I'm going to take you in the laundry. And he took me in the laundry. Number one, I had never seen washing machines this big in my life. It was unbelievable for an experience for me. And when I saw the amount of detergent they were having to use to wash the towels, I could then connect the dots. And once I saw that, no problem. You don't have to wash the towels every day. But you have to educate your consumer as well. So they understand the process. Otherwise, it's all lip service, right? Yeah, I don't know how many people want to go tour the uh, laundry facilities on their vacation, but um, ah, it's I'm something a- that I might. I'm, I'm going to surprise you. I guess. I'm going to. I'm going to tell you the okay. hotel. I'm going to tell you the hotel that did it. And by the way, now it's a regular tour at the hotel, and people go. The kids love it. Right. Really. And, really? and, and parents love it because they can show their kids how hard mom works when they get home. Uh, it's the Holly Kalani in Honolulu. They actually took me in the laundry. It was it was wild. Um, now I'm not saying every hotel wow. does that, but I bet you if you ask, they'll let you see it. And I've always said this, and I think you'll agree with this, Chris, that if you can understand and appreciate the process, that's when you value the product. And and so I'm all about mm-hmm. seeing the process. And when they want to show it to me, that tells me something, and I think it tells you something as well. No, I agree with you. You know, the problem is that you want to know before you go, you know, it's not when you're there, when you're there, it's too late. You've already made the decision to book. And so how do you know before? And that's really, really difficult because everyone is now talking about being green. That's what the story I wrote about in the post was that everyone is claiming to be green. But then you look at the the facts and you realize, wait a minute, you know, you're getting these really low grades from friends of the earth. Uh, You know, you look at the news and you can see these cruise lines are still getting in trouble for dumping and yeah. other environmental practices. So how do you know? And really, there's there just aren't a lot of places where you can get this kind of information about whether or not your cruise is going to be green. It's just something where you've got to do a lot of research on your own beforehand. Here's the real problem, Chris, and, and I, I use Thailand as an example. Uh, there are two bays out there, Pattaya Bay or Pattaya, uh, or or um, another bay that may, many people may remember, uh, Maha Bay, which was used in the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. For the first bay, you know, you see all these 300-room resorts being built, and you ask the Thais, well, what are you doing for black water? What are you doing for gray water? Where, what happens when I flush the toilet in my room? Where does it go? What about employee housing that's that's also, you know, res, you know, respectful? And they say, oh, we have a law here in Thailand that any hotel room with more than 60 units has to provide the gray water area, the black water area, the recycling, the, the employee housing. And it's, 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 it's a very strict law. Really? Well, guess what? They had to close the bay a couple of years ago because all these hotels were pumping raw sewage into the bay. How were they allowed to do that? Here's how they did it. Remember the law said any hotel with more than 60 units? They were selling off to to individual owners 59-unit parcels so they could could circumvent the law. And what ended up happening? They had to close the beach. What happened in Maha Beach based on the popularity of that movie, The Beach? They had to close that too. And it stayed closed for more than two years because they could not handle the numbers of people. People pollution is also an issue, as you mentioned, for Dubrovnik. So I guess the questions you have to ask, I mean, it it could be as simple as this. And by the way, not every travel agent is going to know the answer, but if enough people ask it, they're going to find out the answer. Tell me something, especially if you're going to a beach resort. When I flush the toilet, where does it go? Now, I'm not asking you to take a, a tour of the sewage system, but it would be nice to have that answer. Uh, and what do you do with, with your solid waste? What do you do with paper waste? What do you do with glass waste? What do you do with metal waste? Uh, what do you do with cooking oil? All those questions that, that are not being asked, and certainly if they're not being asked, they're not being answered, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm in Nicosia, Cyprus right now, and uh, you can't drink the water. You have, everyone has to use bottled water and on the entire island. You, you can't drink the water. Uh, and you can't throw toilet paper into the toilet because it, uh, the, the septic system can't handle it. Uh, it is a, I, I mean, I, not really the same thing as what's going on in Thailand right now, but you can see what happens when people don't take care of the environment. Uh, now, this is a very different system, a very different problem that's going on in Cyprus, um, but still, a, you know, a, a reminder that, first of all, if you're going to travel anywhere, you should find out, can you drink the water? Uh, is it safe to drink? But also ask some very basic questions about the environment and how they're going to take care of it. Um, I know it's really fashionable right now to talk about the environment, but some people have never stopped caring. And, they, and when they show up in a destination, they haven't asked those questions. They're sometimes really horrified to find out, you know, there's raw sewage that's being pumped into the bay, into a, maybe a place where people are also swimming. Um, there are all kinds of standards out there that are very different from our standards in the United States. Um, so this is something worth finding out about before you go. Ask your travel agent if you can or do your own research. Um, the information is out there. You just have to know where to look look for it and to remember to look it up before you make your reservation. Because, of course, as I mentioned in the previous segment, it, once you made the reservation and you're there, it's already too late. And by the way, we have a very effective tool in our arsenal. It's called our wallet. We can vote with our wallet. And if enough people say, we're not going because you didn't do X, you know what? Sooner or later, they're going to do X because it becomes economic. It becomes an economic imperative for them to do X. And I'm not saying that people are evil or that people are nasty or that people have bad intentions, but when you're dealing with dollars and cents, people need to understand that the environment doesn't necessarily have to be a negative impact on your profit and loss statement. It can be a positive if you approach it the right way, it will actually generate traffic, especially when people ask questions and they, and they get the answers they really were looking for. Yeah, and, and I don't want to let the cruise lines off too easy here. I mean, what they've done and the slowness with which they've uh, adopted some of these green measures is really very troubling. They've definitely put um, the, their bottom line first. It's expensive to do things like recycle uh, and to not burn your trash. And they've resisted it for a really long time because it's, they think that it's going to cut into their profits. And if enough people do, well, I was going to say, if enough people do what you say, then I think that uh, we can definitely show them that it's more profitable to do the right thing by the environment. My thanks to Chris. And finally, an in-depth look at the beach resort culture, development, and impact from Cancun to Hawaii, from Thailand to the French Riviera. A great new book by Sarah Stadola, appropriately titled, The Last Resort. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I mean, as I read the book, I mean, and I have to tell you, you know, once you delve into the history going back to the days on the French Riviera, uh, you know Monte Carlo and 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 all, you know the, the whole the whole cap uh, mentality there, and then we see what development's been like in terms of the beach resorts, the high rise hotels in Waikiki, Miami Beach, Cancun, uh, 
And then, you know, we, we, we can make certain judgments and certain statements, as you do, about what that does to the environment, what that does to culture, what that does to community, not to mention, you know, all the other ancillary craziness things in terms of, of job and economic base. Then you start talking about other places where we look at them more traditionally as, you know, paradise destinations, like Fiji and, and uh, the South Pacific. And I guess the conclusion that you were drawing is that we got a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like you were saying, in the kind of post-war years is when, with the rise of this, you know, huge middle class and more and more people having the disposable income and the vacation time and all of that to go on vacation, uh, this is when the high-rise concept really came into play and these these popular beachfronts started getting really, really overcrowded a lot of the time. Um and it was actually a little bit before that when, you know, when, when beach tourism emerged as a cultural phenomenon, it really was limited to, to Europe and, and America. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, Hawaii kind of emerged as, as the stepping stone in the early 20th century um, for people heading to more far-flung destinations. Um, and so that's obviously become a huge part of the industry as well and unfortunately requires long haul flights most of the time. Um, so that's become a big problem as well. You know, one of the things that I noticed a couple of years ago, and it, it got me particularly angry is how even well-intentioned laws meant to properly restrict, you know, rampant development and making sure that there was proper, uh, you know, resources for gray water and black water and employee housing and that you weren't polluting were being circumvented by smart developers finding loopholes in those laws. Uh, one of the the, the the classic cases was in Thailand, in uh, uh, Pattaya Beach, where there's a law there that says anytime you build a hotel with more than 61 units, you have to prove you've got facilities for gray water, black water, for recycling, that you have to provide employee housing that's reasonable and affordable. And you see these three and 400 room hotels going up and they're ignoring the law. They're pumping raw sewage into the bay. And, and so I went back and I looked at the law, and the law was pretty strict. So I said, okay, how are they getting around it? They were getting around it by selling that hotel off in parcels of 60 units each. Mm. To individual owners who then could avoid the law. And you'll never guess what happened you know, within four months of this. They had to close the beach. What a surprise. You know, I mean, this is not a beach resort. This is a, a sewage factory. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's one, like you said, a lot of laws do get put in place that, that have good intentions, but the wording in them is so important. And, and if they are at all vaguely worded, it's really easy for developers to, to get around it. One, um, one particular example that comes to mind that happens in a lot of places is that there, there will be laws in place to try to ensure that locals continue to have access to their beaches, even after a, a big resort gets built. And um, when I was in St. Kitts doing research, the, the letter of the law there does say that developers have to provide beach access to the public, but it doesn't go into at all what that beach access looks like. So resorts there will will put the beach access right next to the guardhouse in a way that looks like you're not allowed to go through, you know, so they, they technically are following the letter of the law, but doing so in a way that serves their end in a way the law never intended. The story that you have in the book about Fiji, one of my favorite places in the world, I like to call Fiji Tahiti without the attitude. Um, <laughs> however, there's development there too. And, and I, I guess what you're talking about, Sarah, you're not opposed to development, but people have to be responsible and they have to understand that you can't move one chess piece without moving the, the entire board. What happened to that one small village in Fiji when they, open, when they opened just a single resort? Yeah, I think you're talking about a village called Batua Lai Lai. Um, yes, and I am. a resort called the Navidi Resort opened right next to the village. And, you know, I don't mean to, like you were saying, I don't mean to imply that there are no positives that come out of something like this happening for a village because there were definitely positives. The standard of living did go up 
you know, the villagers had access to health care and education and things like that that they didn't have before the resort went in. But at the same time, there were all of these, you know, unintended consequences where they, they lost a lot of their culture. They lost a lot of their autonomy. Environmentally, this this beach that was a pristine beach before the resort went in is now kind of almost gone because of the way the resort was built wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't using the best practices to ensure that the beach stays in place. They built a seawall, which almost always results in all or some of the beach washing away. So it really was this double-edged sword for um, this village. Um, even at the same time in Fiji, it, it tends to turn out better for for locals than it does in some other places because Fiji has really, really strong laws that ensure um, land ownership rights for the indigenous population. So in, in the case of Vetua Lailai, they're able to rent their land to this resort. Um, and so they, in that way, they ensure that they will be reaping the rewards from having this. Um, at the same time, one of the examples that always kind of blows my mind is, you know, that this is a village that had its own traditional dance that was passed down from generation to generation. And as, um, you know, the resort opened and tourists kind of expect to, you know, on Saturday night or whatever, have um, a show where the, you know, the local dance is, is performed. And what happened was <laughs> the local or the, sorry, the tourists weren't as enthusiastic about this village's traditional dance. It didn't quite align with what they were expecting. And so today the villagers actually perform dances that have been imported from other places that align better with tourist expectations. And the younger generation there doesn't even know the the old traditional sure. dance anymore. They only know the one that's imported. They haven't been handed down, and now they're going to see the Macarena. Uh-oh. <laughs> You're right. Now, in all fairness, most of my listeners, and I include myself in that, we like to go to the beach. We love to go to beach resorts. We like to mm-hmm. travel. So based on everything that you learned on this journey where you went literally all around the world to talk about the beach resort culture, what questions should travelers ask before they book any beach resort? Yeah, I mean, I think one good question to ask is if you're booking a beach resort vacation that's, you know, halfway around the world, ask yourself, like, could you have an equivalent beach resort vacation much closer to home? You know, if you're in the States, you know, in the Caribbean, for example, instead of going to Fiji, that kind of thing. You know, if you are emphasizing the beach, you know, kind of maybe think if there's something more regional you could do. I think another great thing is to always ask yourself who owns and who runs not only the resort itself, but the other, you know, establishments that you're going to be frequenting when you go to a place, the restaurants and the bars and, you know, all of that stuff. I think it's really good to try to go to places that are either locally owned or locally run or managed in some way, um, because that inevitably means supporting that local community in a stronger way. Yeah. You got to follow the money. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And, you know, it's okay to ask, where does the gray water go? Where does the black water go? It's okay to ask that question. And if they can't answer that question, you may want to reconsider. You get to vote with your wallet. We have to make those statements now because otherwise the bad behavior continues. Absolutely. I think that's right. And I think that resorts that are doing the right thing in those kinds of ways are, are happy to tell you about it and, and eager to tell you about it. Um, so the ones that are more reluctant to, to divulge that information, it's probably because they're, they're not putting that effort in. And there's been a little bit of a change in a, very, in a very helpful way, in a very bright way, among a number of resorts that realize that doing the right thing actually can earn them more money. Because at a certain point, if you're closing the beach in Patea, people are not going to come back. They're going to remember that terrible moment. Absolutely. In the long term, doing things right definitely is better for the longevity of, of a business like that. And and as environmentally as well, if you use smart building practices and construction practices that, that, you know, building a little bit further back from the beach can be a big deal when a big storm hits between, you know, the resort getting leveled and it surviving the storm. Of course, we haven't even discussed a, a subject that's near and dear to me because I actually live on an island. And that's rising water levels. You know, I, I used to do this, you know, definitive deconstruction of hotel and resort brochures where they say, you know, steps from the beach or ocean view. 
and you found out that what that meant was you had to bring a pair of binoculars for the ocean view room, and you had to bring, well, your exercise clothes for the steps to the beach because they never told you how many steps. Uh, However, in the era of global warming and rising water levels, we're in a situation where if you're on the beach, you're in danger sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the worst thing a developer can do when building a resort now is try to get as close to the sand as possible. Um, It has all kinds of repercussions for the beach itself, you know, building, especially with concrete and really hard structures right on the beach, almost every time causes beach erosion. Um, So you're kind of destroying the very thing that you're building the, you know, resort to to take advantage of. Um, So, you know, there's that, there's, um, Natural vegetation is something that often is getting is getting uh, cleared away in order to provide those easy steps to the beach. And I think that's one thing that um, a lot of places are starting to really look at now is, is replacing the coconut palms, which are not native to almost any beach resort area and actually aren't that helpful in terms of stopping beach erosion. Um, and replacing those, bringing back the natural vegetation that was helpful in that regard. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for something simple as seagrass. That's why it's there. Yep, exactly. You know, you've got to get right. you got to get the designers and the developers together, and and then educate the marketing people so they understand the long term effects of their decisions. Otherwise, they're going to repeat bad behavior, and uh, places get washed away. I think that's absolutely right. Seagrass is a great example. Mangroves are a great example. Mangroves do so much to protect shorelines and in order to provide that, you know, sweeping horizon view, they, they get taken away when, you know, when resorts get built. Um, and I think there's some, you know, there are some resort companies now that are starting to think about how they can kind of change the, the traveler's perspective uh, and, and turning mangroves into something that's incorporated into a beautiful landscaping. Um, and I think, you know, if we can kind of switch our thinking, um, that can become something that works really well and that people actually enjoy. I mean, we live in a world over the last 30 years that's almost been defined by overdevelopment. And when you did the research for this book and you traveled literally around the world, was there one place that you went that actually pleasantly surprised you? Yes. <laughs> I had moments of, of optimism. And one that comes immediately to mind is when I went to this island um, in Malaysia called Tiamen Island. It's off the, the eastern coast of mainland Malaysia. Um, and they have just been doing a lot of small things that add up in a big way. And, and the one just like most elegant solution that I came across while I was there was they had they had bought this um, this very small machine, probably, you know, a four foot tall by like two foot wide machine that turns bottles into sand. And so they, they had trouble getting sand to the Island when they did need to mix it with cement in order, you know, to build new buildings. Um, at the same time, they, they were having trouble getting rid of all of the beer bottles from tourists. So there were just, you know, mountains of beer bottles, uh, you know, piling up that they didn't know how to get rid of. They were having a lot of difficulty getting them off the island for recycling or, you know, what have you. Um, and so they came up with this solution that that very simply got rid of the beer bottle problem and, and, and also solved the sand shortage problem by creating sand. Um, and, and the whole island uses it now. And it was just, it was such a great thing to see. You know, the, the real problem and the real, the real well, dilemma is in order to make this really work, you almost have to limit tourism numbers. And when you do that, you run the risk of being accused of being elitist, that only the wealthy can go to these smaller resorts that really do a good job versus mass tourism and being open to everybody and the democratization of travel and tourism. So is there a Mm -hmm. middle ground? I mean, I hope so. I don't think that we've found the solution yet because, you know, it's, the middle classes globally, you know, with China and India's middle classes just kind of exploding over the past couple of decades. Um, we, we do have this just huge part of the global population now that, that has the means to go on these kinds of vacations. And I don't think we've quite figured out if we have the you know, 
shore, the beautiful shorelines and beaches to accommodate everybody who wants it yet. Um, I'm hopeful that that something can be figured out, but it's, um, I do think that inevitably beach vacations are going to become more expensive just because the demand versus the supply is a bit out of whack. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how you solve that problem. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's possible, you know, all of the beaches of the world haven't been developed yet. So maybe we can figure out some way to, to build on beaches that haven't been developed yet in a smart way that accommodates, you know, enough people. Um, so that everybody who wants to go on their beach vacation can, but I think it's still a work in progress and remains to be seen if, if we can pull it off. Sarah Stadola, the author of The Last Resort, A Chronicle of Paradise, Profit and Peril at the Beach. You're giving me some hope, and that's good, but I, I emphasize people need to read this book before you take your next vacation. It will really change the way you approach it. It won't stop you from going, but it will start you asking the questions that need to be asked. My thanks to Sarah, to Chris Elliott, and to Mike Boyd. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know the drill. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis-Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.